Politico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Don Guerra. The city of Bloomington is doing maintenance on its fire hydrants. A City of Bloomington Utilities Department press release states that areas affected by the fire hydrant maintenance will include East Moores Pike, East Aurora Road, South Smith Road, and South High Street. Residents may experience a discoloration in their tap water as well as fluctuations in water pressure due to the maintenance. The Utilities Department is recommending residents run cold tap water until the color of their water changes back to clear. Maintenance is expected to last until tomorrow, although the recent rainy weather may delay maintenance crews. Utilities Director Vic Kelson says repairs to the railroad trestle at Lake Lemon will be completed this week. The water level at Lake Lemon was lowered by about two feet in order to allow the Indiana Railroad Company to work on the aging trestle, which was built in 1906. During their Monday meeting, Kelson was asked by Utilities Service Board President Sam Frank if he'd heard any feedback from area residents about the work. We haven't heard any complaints since since the work began. I think everyone will be happy to have it over with. That's good. Kelson said the work on the train trestle may be delayed by rainy weather. The Utilities Service Board also approved a permit request from AB Biotechnologies to pre-treat waste at their facility on North Curry Pike during their Monday meeting. Pre-treatment coordinator Tamara Roberts said the permit is associated with the company's expansion of its pharmaceutical manufacturing plant. So they are currently already located on the west side of town, but they're currently constructing a new operating and manufacturing facility. And they're going to be producing pharmaceuticals, mostly injectable drugs, and they're going to be doing this for small clinical trials. So their daily maximum output is only 5,000 gallons per day. They plan to start operations later this year or early next year. kind of depends on their construction schedule, how that, how that goes. Roberts says AB Biotechnologies permit comes with self-monitoring requirements from the city of Bloomington. In the first 90 days, they'll have what's called baseline monitoring. This is something we require all new industrial users that are categorical and require a permit for. And then they will also have ongoing monitoring requirements as any normal industrial user would. Formed in 2008, the locally owned company reportedly plans to add 33 new jobs by 2020 with its expansion. Jeff Dukes is a professor at Purdue and is director of Purdue Climate Change Research Center. Dukes recently predicted effects of climate change on Indiana. He says there will be impacts on public health, water supply and quality, energy use, agriculture, infrastructure, including roads, bridges, and underground utilities, 
ecosystems, and natural hazards. The climate change forecast and consequences by the middle of this century include the following. First, temperatures will increase about 3 degrees Fahrenheit, which will mean a longer growing season. It could also cause pavement buckling and rutting, the expansion of bridge joints, and a lengthened construction season. Second, there will be an increase of two weeks of summer temperatures hotter than 95 degrees Fahrenheit. This could also lead to longer periods of drought in August that will affect crops and wildlife. Finally, heavy rainfall events accompanied by more tornadoes and severe high winds are predicted and could lead to increased flooding. In terms of health, the predicted climate changes could result in reduced air quality, increased heat-related deaths, and increased presence of vector-borne diseases carried by mosquitoes and ticks. The Fort Wayne News Sentinel reported monarch butterflies were tagged and released at Matea County Park in time for the insects' annual fall migration to wintering grounds in Mexico. Ron DeVilbus, an environmental educator at the park, worked with several Indiana Master Naturalist volunteers to tag butterflies just outside the park's nature center. The butterflies they tagged started life as eggs or caterpillars in the wild. For their protection, they were moved into a mesh-enclosed cabinet and fed a constant buffet of fresh milkweed leaves, the monarch caterpillar's sole food. The caterpillars grew in captivity until they reached full size. Then they encased themselves in chrysalises. The fully developed butterflies were tagged after emerging from their chrysalises and drying their wings. They were released after tagging. As one volunteer gently held a butterfly by its closed wings, another attached a Monarch Watch identification tag to one wing. The tags are like little tiny stickers. They contain an identification number as well as a toll-free number to call if the butterfly is found. In this way, researchers seek to track what happens to individual butterflies. The volunteers carried tagged butterflies to nearby Cosmos flower blooms so the insects could feed before resuming life in the wild. By raising and releasing the butterflies, they hope to help the insect rebuild its declining population. About 80% of the monarchs raised in captivity survive to release, DeVilbus said. Only about 20% live that long in the wild, largely because of predators. On September 26, survivors of Hurricane Harvey in Texas and Hurricane Irma in Florida occupied the Washington, D.C. office of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. They demanded that he acknowledge the role of climate change and the fossil fuel industry in making those storms more ferocious. They said they picked McConnell because he's the leader of climate change denial. Those sitting in, headed by leaders of the grassroots groups, Texas Environmental Justice Advocacy Services and New Florida Majority, delivered a petition with nearly 200,000 signatures demanding that Congress take immediate action on the climate, including committing to 100% clean energy, a halt to new fossil fuel projects, and a just energy transition. 
the occupiers contended that McConnell and fellow senators refused to acknowledge that low-income communities, communities of color, and vulnerable people around the world have borne the worst effects of climate breakdown while having contributed little or nothing to causing it. For seven years, activists fought a proposed coal export terminal near Longview, Washington. The state received 260,000 public comments opposing the permit. It looks as though the efforts finally paid off. Washington state legislators denied a water quality permit for the terminal on September 26th. The permit denial is likely to mark the end of the battle. The Washington Department of Ecology denied the permit for the millennial bulk terminal because the facility would cause, quote, significant and unavoidable harm, unquote, to the nearby city of Longview. The department also stated that it rejected the permit because the terminal would cause environmental harm in nine important areas from air quality to ship traffic. The coal export terminal would have been the country's largest. It was expected to export as much as 40 million tons of coal per year from Wyoming and Montana to China. The terminal could have increased U.S. coal exports by 40 percent. According to a new report, the meat industry is responsible for one of the largest dead zones ever observed in the Gulf of Mexico. A dead zone is a huge ocean area that contains few living things. Jellyfish are able to survive in these environments. An investigation performed by the environmental group Mighty found that the toxins and nitrates contained excessively in manure and fertilizer have drained into the waterways that enter the Gulf of Mexico. The resulting dead zone is roughly the size of New Jersey and located off the coast of Louisiana. The pollution is thought to be responsible for hypoxia, or a lack of oxygen. The high levels of nitrates and other nutrients cause algae and phytoplankton to grow. When those organisms die, they sink to the bottom and cause a huge growth of bacteria, which use up the oxygen in the water. That condition drives off or kills marine life. Researchers found that the main corporate driver of the dead zone was Tyson Foods. Nuclear weapon contractors have shipped mislabeled or inadequately packaged hazardous materials at least 25 times in the past five years. This news is from the Center for Public Integrity, which monitors the activities of private nuclear weapons contractors. Government documents examined by the center show those materials included nuclear weapons-grade plutonium, conventional explosives, and very toxic chemicals. The documents detail repeated incidents in which dangerous materials essential to creating nuclear weapons and their components were mislabeled before shipment. As a result, the people transporting and receiving those materials received no warning of the safety risks and thus didn't take precautions required to protect themselves or the public. The Los Alamos National Laboratory, a nuclear weapons lab in New Mexico that's owned by the government but operated by private corporations, was the worst offender. Of the known shipping mistakes made since July 2012, 11 originated at Los Alamos or passed through the lab. 
the private nuclear weapons contractors involved in those incidents suffered no consequences in many cases. The EPA's Environmental Justice Screening and Mapping Tool, or EJ Screen, which the public can use to evaluate possible exposure to environmental pollutants, has added a prison layer. The new layer permits the public to overlay locations of the nation's 6,000-plus prisons, jails, and detention centers with information about such environmental hazard dangers as Superfund and other hazardous waste sites. The Human Rights Defense Center has been promoting this change as part of its campaign for the EPA to consider prisoners in terms of environmental justice. As Truthout put it, quote, for the prison ecology movement, which addresses issues at the intersection of mass incarceration and environmental degradation, the new layer could be a game changer, unquote. A recent investigation by Earth Island Journal and Truthout uncovered the fact that mass incarceration affects the health of prisoners and communities adjacent to prisoners and also the health of local ecosystems. Finally this week, a new piece of the Antarctic ice field has broken off and is floating away. Earlier, the Larsen Sea piece calved and is floating away from Antarctica. Scientists have since converged on the area uncovered by the separation. It has exposed a previously untouched ecology. Now we can report another calving event on the Pine Island Glacier. A 100-square-mile piece has broken off. The Pined Island Glacier, most of which is on land, would raise ocean levels more than one foot if it eventually melts. The glacier is located in the western region of the continent, which is the most vulnerable to melting. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Juliana Daly. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired. Or, if you have ideas for future stories, please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. For today's Eco Report feature story, WFHB correspondent Norm Holy interviews Richard Hardy, professor of biology at Indiana University, about how mosquito and other vector-borne diseases are impacted by climate change. This is Norm Holy from WFHB, and today I'm interviewing Professor Richard Hardy at IU. He's going to be talking to us about uh, mosquito-borne or blocking mosquito-borne viruses. The CDC has said that there's a danger with climate change that we could see like West Nile and Ebola in areas that they have not been. They could move in north and uh, they are not in Indiana at this point, but nonetheless there is a danger of that. But the, um, the mosquito-borne diseases are taking a great toll. In fact, if you ask, you know, what is the most dangerous species t to human life, it's not uh, great white sharks, it's, it's not the lion, it's the mosquito. So um, would you talk about just the uh, transmission of diseases by mosquitoes? Sure. 
Sure. So, I mean, as you, you referenced the the um, yeah, mosquitoes as as a group, and there's there's many species of mosquitoes, most of which um, feed on on blood from from vertebrates and sort of a necessary part of the reproductive cycle. But they're responsible. Um, viruses have taken advantage of the blood feeding nature of mosquitoes to use them as a very effective means of being transmitted from one vertebrate host to another. Um, and when we think about human disease, uh, there are billions of people who live in regions where they are at risk of, in fact, mosquito transmitted viruses are essentially found on every continent in the world with maybe the exception of Antarctica. Um, so the, these sort of arthropod-borne diseases are very, uh, are very prevalent and a number of them are very debilitating in terms of the diseases they cause and again a, a, a number of those disease-causing pathogens are, are, um, are, are highly, are, can be quite lethal. Um, generally, what we're looking at is with, with humans is a, a handful of mosquito species that are capable of transmitting these pathogens. The most dangerous, I suppose, of which are Aedes aegypti, which uh, transmits uh, yellow fever, dengue virus, Zika virus, and also uh, something called the chikungunya virus, which uh, less lethal, but causes a very debilitating arthritic disease. And then you're looking at uh, Anopheles um, species, um, particularly Anopheles gambi, which is responsible for the transmission of a, a eukaryotic parasite that is plasmodium that's the causative agent of malaria, which is takes an incredible toll on um, the health of many, particularly many African nations. Usually, when we think about uh, disease transmission by mosquitoes, we tend to think of uh, uh, an infected mosquito that, that will transmit virus through its saliva when it takes a blood meal on, in, on, on a human, when it takes a, a human blood meal. Uh, the human then becomes infected and has, uh, and within a few days to a week, ends up producing uh, a high level of virus in the blood so that when another mosquito bites the human, it becomes infected with the virus from the blood meal and so the cycle continues. Um, and viruses have adapted to, to um, this mode of transmission quite efficiently and this means that, again, we, we end up with good transmission of, of, of things like yellow fever and, and dengue virus is particularly a problem in, in South America and other parts of the tropics. But what has been relatively recently um, come, uh, has come to the attention of, sort of the scientific community of the people who study these things is the, the involvement of another um, party in this, uh, in this transmission cycle. And that's a, um, a a bacterium that infects mosquitoes. Um, doesn't seem to cause a great deal of um, uh, damage to the mosquito. Doesn't really seem to cause disease. Maybe a slight shortening of the length of life of the mosquito. Um, and it's found in some mosquito species. It's found in a lot. This is this is a it's a bacterium called Wolbachia. 
and it's um, it's an what's referred to as an endosymbiont, which means it lives inside the host cell. So it lives inside the cells of of insects and some uh, some nematode worms, and um, so it, and it's very 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 prevalent in in the world. So there's a lot, probably one of the most prevalent infections around in terms of the number of species that are actually that actually carry this thing. Um, one of the effects a Wolbachia infection has in, um, in, in mosquitoes, when we, when we infect mosquitoes with it, uh, um, is that it seems to inhibit the growth and infectivity of um, viruses that normally can be transmitted by mosquitoes. So this is, uh, we, we could, in a way, um, it's not quite accurate, but in a way we could think of this as being a mechanism of vaccinating mosquitoes. That is, the mosquitoes carry the Wolbachia and then that prevents them from transmitting um, these uh, dangerous viruses. Uh, one of the things my, my colleague um, Irene, I, um, Professor Irene Newton in the biology department and I have been, have been studying along with the the, well, the, the major work being done by a graduate student in my lab, Tamanash Bhattacharya. Um, one of the things we've been studying is, is how, what is the mechanism by which Wolbachia blocks virus replication and, and inhibits virus infectivity. Because while we know the phenomena exists, we know when Wolbachia is present, um, the, the virus infectivity is, is decreased and transmission goes down. Um, and in fact, it's being used in the wild. Mosquitoes with this are being introduced into areas um, in high numbers to try and reduce the transmission of pathogens in certain, in certain areas um, with some degree of success. Um, we don't know how it works, and it's fine throwing things out there into the world um, uh, with some knowledge that they do work, but if we don't know how they work, then we can't predict what potential down-the-road outcomes might occur. Um, we may get viruses that um, adapt to the presence of Wolbachia, and as a consequence of their adaptation, maybe they become more pathogenic. Um, maybe not. But um, we don't know how it works. If we know how it works, um, we have a better idea about whether this is something that the virus can evolve around or whether it's something that is going to prevent that kind of adaptation occurring. Um, so we were using, we've used um, fruit flies as a surrogate model for, um, for, for a mosquito. They're relatively closely related in the grand scheme of things um, and serve as an excellent model because they're they're easy to manipulate genetically um, so we can find out what's happening in them. Um, so how do you infect the fruit, fruit flies with the Wolbachia? Um, the fruit flies with uh, <laughs> fruit flies naturally uh, some uh, there, there is a there is uh, uh, a uh, strain of Wolbachia that actually naturally infects fruit flies. So, so there's some lines of fruit flies carry it, and you can simply, it's transmitted um, vertically, so from, from uh, one generation to the next through the females. So if you have a, a, a mother fly 
who is infected with Wolbachia, then the offspring will all be infected with Wolbachia. So if we, we begin by crossing a Wolbachia-infected female to maybe an uninfected male with a certain genetic background that we want, and then the offspring will be infected, and then some of them will have that genetic background that we're looking for. So, so it, it, it's actually, as I say, is, is transmitted not... It, it, there, it, there is believed to be some mechanism of horizontal, individual-to-individual uh, -individual transmission, but it's generally transmitted vertically through, between generations through the females. Are you an environmental activist, an expert on a particular issue of environmental concern, a concerned citizen interested in learning more about local and national environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. And now for our weekly community events calendar. Drop by the Payne Town State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake for the Squirrely Squirrels program on Friday, October 6th, from 6 to 7.30 p.m. Discover why and where squirrels are stashing nuts and make a squirrel craft. Meet at the campground playground. A bird buffet program will be presented at McCormick's Creek State Park on Saturday, October 7th from 10 to 10.30 a.m. Winter will be here soon. Let's make sure you have the tools and knowledge to make it easier for your feathered friends. Come to the Nature Center to help fill the feeders and learn how to create a backyard bird habitat in your yard. The Bloomington Community Farmers Market will be recurring weekly on Saturdays until November 25th from 9 a.m. until 1 p.m. Enjoy end-of-the-season locally grown fruits and vegetables and a variety of prepared foods. The market is free to attend. A hunter's full moon hike will take place at Charlestown State Park on Saturday, October 7th from 8 to 10 p.m. This 2.9-mile rugged hike takes place on Trail 4. Meet at the Trail 3 and 4 parking lot for this night adventure. Good hiking shoes, a hiking stick, and a red flashlight are recommended. And finally, Nature Sounds. Hawks featuring musical guest Fiddle and Feet will perform on Friday, October 13th at Lower Cascades Park in Bloomington from 7.30 to 8.30 p.m. Nature sings and her music touches our hearts. The Nature Sound Series combines a live acoustic performance with an educational nature presentation about the sounds made by creatures of the water, earth, and sky. The event is free, but bring your own seating. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. 
MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's news stories were written by Linda Green, Norm Holy, Sarah Vaughn, and Alex Davis. Norm Holy produced our feature. Rebecca Mueller edited the script. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Our engineer is Kirsten Payton. Producer is Rebecca Mueller. Executive producer is Wes Martin. For WFHB, I'm Don Guerra. And I'm Juliana Daly. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. Until then, Eco Report encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. Thank you.